Welcome to the On Your Left podcast, a politics podcast that's probably to your left. I'm Katrina Ames, and I use she, them pronouns. And I'm Narali Shatha. I use she, her pronouns. Um, we are in your podcast feeds every Wednesday, so please be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts and um, share this podcast with your friends. We think it's pretty good. If you're listening to this, you obviously think it's pretty good. So please feel free to share. And if you would like to help us make this podcast, you can support us by going to Patreon. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash onyourleftpod. And this is not an inexpensive hobby. If you like this podcast and want to financially support us, please do that. <laughs> it would be good. So uh, what are we talking about today, Katrina? Today, we are talking about protest music, its history, and how it's being used now, which is kind of amazing because it's changed so much, but so often it has stayed the same. Yeah, researching this was super fascinating because, like, it's almost the great American tradition of, like, protest music started with, like, Yankee Doodle being a Revolutionary War song. We're talking about today because of the ongoing protests against police brutality and American racism, um, and that's the genre of protest music we'll be talking about today. Yeah, um, especially as the way we've been using protest music has changed, largely because of technology. We are building communities online, we are creating mutual aid networks online, and we are doing all of this with our phones and headphones because we are also as protesters that care about our community, trying to stay six feet away from our community with masks on because we don't want each other to die. It's kind of why we're protesting. Uh, once again, we are against needless death here at On Your Left Podcast. We don't like preventable deaths. Yep, we are preventing those preventable deaths. Wash your hands. The revolution will be TikToked. It's fine. Yeah, we are using music in really interesting ways, uh, partially because of how TikTok works right now, where you can take and sample other people's music and other people's sounds to make your own new thing and spread messages so widely while still putting your own spin on it. Um, and that's really, really cool. But I think first mm -hmm. we should kind of talk about historically how black music has always pushed against state violence because black people have invented uh, pretty much every American music art form that is uniquely American and respons are responsible for our culture. Yeah, country, jazz, rock and roll. That was them too. We just yeah, country, jazz, hip hop, rock and roll. Yeah, Elvis stole it. Um, <laughs> Little Richard was there first. Um, yeah, and it's super important. We've always used it to push against state violence, and that's how we're using it now. So we're just, there are other forms of protest music, but we're just going to focus on this part because we don't want to record for multiple hours, just, just to be clear. If we wanted to go through the entire history of protest music, it would probably take us, like, seven months. Um... So today we're just going to do a little dive into um, black music that uh, protests against state violence. So in the blues 
and jazz era of American music history, which was uh, from the late 1920s to the early 1960s. We saw people like Billie Holiday and Louis Armstrong, who were brilliant, brilliant artists, bearing witness to what was happening in the country. And just talking about the experiences of Black America was an act of protest. Because it was such a widely oppressed group that weren't able to share their stories, these artists used their platform to write about what was happening and spread the messages of just what was happening because you can't correct an injustice that you don't know about. And there's a great story about Louis Armstrong that I learned while researching. So uh, Louis Armstrong's whole band Mm -hmm. was arrested in the South during the Jim Crow era for reportedly, allegedly breaking a Jim Crow era law, which was, you know, notoriously racist, right? They were targeted because they were black. But the police department said they would release them if the band was willing to play a charity benefit, which once again seems suspicious that they had this in line uh, and arrested them and already had this benefit set up. So Louis Armstrong played a song called I'm Gl- I'll Be Glad <laughs> When You're Dead. Yep. And dedicated it to the police officers and the sheriff of that area. And you know what? That's... <laughs> oh, what a mood. What a mood. So Strange Fruit was a song that um, was originally a poem that... Um, that Billie Holiday didn't write. Um, it was... Uh, by a Jewish uh, communist teacher and civil rights activist from the Bronx that um, Billie Holiday popularized. And um, it was uh, based on a photo of a lynching in Indiana. And um, when Billie Holiday first heard the song, um, she was reminded of her father who died really young at 39 of lung cancer after being turned away from a hospital because he was black. So it shows how like, like those experiences are so important and they're still problems today of the way black people are treated in hospitals. And there's been a recent spate of lynchings, but so these are still issues and strange and uh, Billie Holiday knew that she had to perform this song because of how important it was and how important she almost knew it would continue to be. Um, yeah, it really changed her career, too, because federal authorities refused to issue her a cabaret license, which means she was done performing. Um there and there were people trying to silence her and she was arrested uh for uh using marijuana because of a person who hated her and what she stood for and the fact that she stood up for herself using the song um so she eventually obviously continued her career and continued to be a legend but it's Fascinating how just one song can change someone's career and really define their career, Um, especially a protest song like Strange Fruit. Yeah, protest music never had a point where it stopped because we continued the tradition on from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. Um, 
think now is a good time to transition to soul and funk music, which was like the 1960s to the mid 1980s, mm-hmm. uh, which resonated heavily with themes of black power. It was very intentionally songs about black power and promoting the idea that black people were good and deserved to be heard. Uh, I loved this quote from The Lumpin, which is like a not well-known, <laughs> not well-known soul and funk band, which was formed among active Black Panther Party members. Um, and they were inspired by other party members like Elaine Brown, who recorded the 1969 protest album Seize the Time. And The Lumpin said that they meant to use popular forms of music that the community could relate to and politicize it so it would function as yet another weapon in the struggle for liberation. The music of this era was deeply political and it was consistently about letting people be free and fighting for their own freedom. Yeah, so it was really um, purposeful this time because like when did it's yeah 1967 so like the civil rights movement was already massive at that point so they obviously like took that and chose to make music about that um i think that's super interesting i also think it's super interesting that like soul and funk music especially is like associated with a lot of fun like the beats are fun and it's pretty danceable music a lot of the time um but so that like the activism is almost it's almost like there's activism and joy at the same time with this kind of music which i think is really important yeah i think it is important to take joy in your work because activism in of in of itself is a hopeful act you don't you don't do things you don't try to change the world Mm -hmm. if you don't think you can succeed you have to believe something good will happen and reveling in that joy is such a good way to recharge and to ensure that you're not burning yourself out yeah and we'll also see element of that throughout the history of um of protest music like throughout the rest of protest music i think there are also you know sad songs which are also good um so yeah so i think uh a song that's still really popular from this era is marvin gaye's inner city blues he lot of he wrote a lot of really great laments and sad songs which were meant to let you just sort of sit in your sadness and experience the moment and pain that other people were experiencing. And let me tell you, white people loved mm-hmm. Marvin Gaye. Well, white people now love Marvin Gaye. Oh, yeah. White people now really love Marvin Gaye. The laments that he wrote were often in direct response to civil rights era law enforcement. He would speak and write and sing about how they were beating up protesters and white people now are just like, wow, what beautiful, soulful music. And it is. It's amazing, beautiful music. 
but it can't be divorced from that history either. Yeah, Marvin Gaye wasn't just the, like, fun, sexy music guy. He was also very political in his music, and that's important to remember. Um, and then um, in 1985, around then, uh, there was the emergence of rap music uh, that often sampled work from black artists that came before them and was a, a direct response to widely publicized police violence. Um, I think this is one of my favorite eras of protest music, just or it, like rap music is one of my favorite genres of protest music in general, but like it's just so explicit and direct about these things like obviously there's nwa's fuck the police which is the most blatant song of its era um speaking directly to the fractured police communi- police and community relations in inner city los angeles um the song not only struck a nerve with countless black youths in cities nationwide but it caught the attention of the fbi um whose displeasure with the record was documented and sent to the group's record label. Um, There are multiple instances, I believe, of NWA performing the song and then their concerts being um, interrupted by the police. Um, There are so many instances of that happening. Um, But people kept singing it. People kept shouting the lyrics. Um... And that song still lives on today. Yeah, it's one of the very, very few songs from the early 90s that I actually know. (laughs) Uh, Which is really a testament to how well this song lives on. I mean, I also know the Macarena, but that's because it came with a fun dance. (laughs) Like, fuck the police is a very direct call to action because yeah fuck the police Mm -hmm. but also it spoke to the pain and anger that generations of young black people have felt at the hands of the police and the systematic oppression and violence that is placed upon their communities like this is also when it wasn't just on wa there was also like tupac and biggie were both writing protests protest music um it was like the 90s were a real time for it um because there were there was horrible police brutality that you know obviously wasn't fixed but it but this music provided some sort of it shone a light on it um and very loudly shone a light on it which i think is really important it was very much so a twofold kind of protest music because it was an outlet for aggression mm-hmm. and anger and frustration that people felt. Well, still, because it was mm-hmm. so explicit and didn't hide like that they were confronting the police and that they were confronting these systems, it brought a lot of awareness to what was actually happening because it got people to ask, why do all of these kids, why are all of these kids screaming, fuck the police? What have the police done? And then you realize, oh, Mm -hmm. the police have done a lot and it's not good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then they continued showing their asses by, like, trying to break up these performances. (laughs) 
If you thought someone's musical message wasn't important and wasn't impactful, you wouldn't try to break up their concerts, and you wouldn't have the FBI sending documents and records of how unhappy they were to the record label. The FBI has done a lot of shitty shit, but you know, this is one of it. Yeah, like, uh, the impact of this music cannot be denied at all. Um, I'm, And I mean, like... Isn't it some sort of form of fascism to, like, prevent free expression? <laughs> and that's exactly what was happening because they saw they saw pro- this type of protest music as dangerous. Yeah, I think... Uh, so one thing, one thing people might want to know about me is that my dad is a very old white man. Uh, so let's... Let me start the story with this. So my dad is a very old white man. He is a very old conservative religious white man and as such one day when i was 12 years old I was at his house because my parents are divorced i was at his house and i was listening to uh some pop music something like a bubbly pop music that was for middle schoolers and there was one verse that was rapped one verse and my dad immediately freaked out that i was listening to it i don't remember what song it was it was definitely like a song about how much like, this boy band valued men and, like, thought that girls were so cool and smart and great. Because I had to be so self-esteem. Yeah, we were in middle school, like, during the very beginnings of Justin Bieber happening. So, like, that's the kind of music we were listening to. <laughs> that's the kind of music that was popular, at least. But no, it, like, for all I know, it could have been Justin Bieber song that my dad completely freaked out about because he had this old conservative white man had lived through the emergence of rap music and learned to fear it. And that's because it was, and at times still is such a direct and confrontational form of protest to these oppressive systems. I'm going to leave that story in. No, that's a good story. And I think it's interesting like, because I come from a completely different perspective of my parents, like, coming into this country in the late 80s and early 90s and, like, not really knowing about rap music at all. Um, so their first in- encounter of it was, like, with me listening to it, but they were still taught in taught to not like black people or black music. Like, that was something they quickly realized when they came to this country, that, like, being black was not the ideal place to be. Um, So then listening to that music was kind of just not something we should do, you know? Like, they never stopped us from listening to whatever the hell we wanted, but also they were like, be careful listening to this, you know? Like, they still somehow internalized that fear. I think there's no way you can really escape anti-blackness in our country, uh, no matter what background is. But, like, anti-blackness is definitely a thing that the Asian community picked up on real fast and continues to do so with every new generation. And uh, hopefully we're breaking that cycle. That's what we're trying to do. Uh-huh. I do want to talk about uh, one more song from basically the 90s. Um, so one of the first 
one of the first real protest songs, one of the first real anti-police songs I ever heard, uh, was a parody of this song, actually. It was a hockey parody uh, that someone in Pittsburgh that I knew wrote called Cap Killers. And it was, it was about how the Penguins were going to beat the Washington Capitals. And I asked, well, that's an interesting song. What's the original? And they told me, oh, it's a body counts cop killer. And it is it has direct response and has references to Rodney King riots in LA and the massive amounts of police brutality that took place in the early 90s. That's a hell of a song to parody, my god. <laughs> Why? I don't understand sports. I don't know why still. I sometimes get sports. I don't get it. I, do, I don't. I don't. I what? like. Look, I like the penguins. <laughs> I don't really get hockey. Uh, the closest I come to understanding mm-hmm. hockey is reading Check Please by Nikosiazu. But I like the penguins because they're my home team <laughs> and their mascot is cute. Okay? It doesn't need to be that complicated. And it definitely didn't need to be that aggressive. But also, like. The cops killed people in the early 90s, and then people wrote a song about it. And why did it? Because they were killing people, and they, have, and they were being called out by musicians. Go Pens. Good lord. Uh, man, that's like the whitest thing I've ever heard, though. Like, let's take this really intense protest song about, like, the Rodney King riots. And talk about how my team is gonna be your team i don't think i have to say that i grew up in a predominantly white community i think that's just i think that's very visible from these stories okay so um let's let's just kind of talk about our actual experiences uh, with protest music um which i think protest music is largely defined by the black latin movement which roughly started in 2014 so i distinctly remember um the black lives matter um, protests happening in New York because I was in New York and I was literally living on Union Square, which is where they would start and go uptown from there. And um, it was honestly such an amazing experience. And one of the things that made it amazing was um, hearing people shout the lyrics to Kendrick Lamar's All Right, which is just, I mean, that whole album to I think it's on T-Pad. I will say, so after that happened, Kendrick Lamar released a new song, uh, The Blacker the Berry, I think it's called. Uh, let me double check that. Yeah. Blacker the Berry, which was very explicitly about anti-blackness within our society because he realized how his music was being used, liked how it was being used, and then made more music for people to use and test because he cares out the cause. Yeah. Yeah, it was on to Pimp a Butterfly, which that entire album, if you haven't listened to that album from beginning to end, I highly recommend it because A, it takes, um, there are features on it from people like George Clinton, who was um, part of the parliament, which is this Afrofuturism funk band from the 80s, and also like Snoop Dogg, and a ton of amazing people on it. And it just tells the story of being black in America. And both Bl- The Black or the Berry and All Right are on that album. And it's... The entire album is a protest 
anthem, but really All Right was the big one in 2014, and that's really the first um, time I heard protest music being used that way, like, in an actual protest. Um, And it was really incredible. Yeah, I think really before then, the only time I had any experiences with protest music was in an academic sense. Uh, when I was learning about how protest music was used into protests like the Vietnam War, which was completely divorced from my own reality as a teenager, uh, and not something I could really understand. Yeah, I mean, I did listen to a lot of Green Day. That was like my first foray into protest music, but yeah, but it's just interesting because that still, I think because it was like Green Day's protest music was about like this war that was being fought abroad and it was ab- a lot of uh, about a lot of things that I didn't quite understand perfectly well um it still felt distant in a way that like all right did not like I completely got it because we were living in that moment and we were yeah. there you know I think looking back I kind of felt cheated when learning about protest music and like a class where I was supposed to be learning about like rhetoric mm-hmm. and how people use language to like push forward causes when we totally could have been learning about Green Day or rap music or things that were directly related to mm-hmm. our current situations or at least something we were already kind of familiar with. Like this is just one form of protest music. We are not talking about so much of it because it just kept ha- kept happening and keeps happening when people keep writing amazing music that tries to push forward their progressive causes um and yeah and i think that takes us to right now and the current moment we're in and the current black lives matter movement hey everyone this is future editing katrina where we're editing the podcast i'm sure you've been able to tell but my half of the podcast and my audio uh, has been steadily deteriorating throughout this episode. Uh, so I try to make it cut. We were just focused on the rallies portion of the conversation for our good news while talking about folklore. And although it was an excellent conversation, the rally also didn't really make any sense without my half. And nothing that I said was in any way understandable. So, uh, our good news is that Folklore by Taylor Swift came out. It's an amazing album. We loved it. Our mango fact is honestly something I've forgotten already, but, you know, go eat a mango. They're delicious. That's our mango fact. Mangoes are delicious. And uh, I've learned some really important lessons about recording the podcast, so hopefully this never happens again. Thank you so much for sticking out this long on the episode. I really appreciate it. And I hope you have a good rest of your week. If you want to follow me, you can follow me at Katrina Ames on Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. And you can follow Narali at Firebird Sparkler on every platform. Uh, you can also follow the podcast at On Your Left Pod on Twitter. And check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash on your left pod. Thank you so much.